Well, this morning we turn to Psalm 105 as we come close to the end of our look at book four, remembering that we're going to end one book short, or excuse me, one psalm short as we look at book four of the psalms. Uh, next week, Psalm 106, and then we're going to leave and, and uh, jump into Advent. It's hard to believe that the season of Advent is here, but uh, it is. So uh, we'll be doing that. So today uh, we look at Psalm 105, and Psalm 105 similar to Psalm 104, is this long recounting. Last week, we considered that beautiful and long recounting of the psalmist regarding the glory of God in creation and in nature and how all of nature sings the glory of God. And here, the psalmist does a similar thing in that he does another recounting, but this time not of nature, but a recounting of history, of God's covenantal history the history of his people. And it's interesting, you know, we've been, uh, uh, Christina's doing a, a Lord of the Rings reading group. It's one of these clubs we have at school. And so it's challenged me to get in and to, to read it. I, I, was, I was embarrassed to say that I had not read it. Uh, so this is compelling me to read it so I can kind of keep up with their reading club. And, and uh, it's, of course, it's something I feel I should read. And uh, it's wonderful. And so we've been, as you read Tolkien, you know, in The Lord of the Rings, and then last night uh, Tommy wanted to watch The Hobbit, so we were watching, you know, Peter Jackson's, you know, he broke it into three movies, but we watched the first one. And one of the neat things when you watch Tolkien and, and or read him is that, uh, you know, he, he creates this, there's a whole world, you know, he creates the elven language, for example. I mean, there's an actual language. There are geeks out there who have learned the elven language. Uh, but but what makes Tolkien so compelling is that his, his little world in Middle-earth uh, holds together, like there's a backstory, uh, there's a language, there's, he has, he has concocted this world. And one of the things I love when I read it is that cohesiveness. It's, you get to the elven King Elrond and he recounts the story to you. Here's, here's the story of our fathers. And, and you meet Thorin, you know, and he's got a whole story behind him of his grandfather and his father and where we used to be. And this is our story. And we're waiting for the time when we will go back and reclaim the mountain and, and reestablish our, our throne. There's a story, a very long story. You feel that when you read Tolkien. It feels ancient. I love that about it. The people know who they are because they're rooted in this deep story. And they have a place within that. They've come from something and they're going somewhere and they have a role to play in this grand story. And when you get to Psalms like Psalm 105, we feel this and we understand that Tolkien is creating that world because he understands this world. He's a man of God. And he's, he's writing a fictional world out of the true world experience. And we, and he, Tolkien himself, is a man with a story, and he's a man who comes from a people. And it's not just the British people he comes from, but it's the people of God. And the psalmist in Psalm 105 is rejoicing and celebrating the story of God's people. And it's a story that we ought to know and we ought to know well. Again, maybe it's worth thinking where your place within the church and within the history of the church ranks in your self-identification. 
Just when you think of yourself within society, what do you think of yourself as? What kind of rises to the top of the list? Is it Christian? Is it this is my story? These are my people. Who are your people? And there's all different groups. We have all different kinds of people that we're associated with. You know, whether it's our career, you know, I'm an engineer. Those are my people. We're, we're engineers, you know, or I'm, or I'm associated with a, with, a, with a group, a business, or maybe with an athletic team, or certainly a nation, right? We're Americans. We feel that. It's our, these are our people to some degree, right? But, but what is the highest story? What is the story that defines all the other stories? What is the, the story, the lineage, the tradition, use the words you want, into which all the other ones must find their place? And I just think for many, many Christians, Christianity is not the ultimate story that they're in. It's one of the stories, and they don't even know it that well. We don't know the story. We, we, we can't recount the story like Elrond can, you know, the, the story of the elves and the dwarves in Middle-earth. Like, he could just rattle this off. He knows it. It's in his bones. It's a story that defines him. For the psalmist, the story of God's covenant toward his people is the story that defines him. And of course he can tell it. What else is there to tell? How about you? Can you tell it? Do you know it? Is it the story that defines you? Well, today in our text, I believe the psalmist is charging us to remember the story. That's what the point of the psalm is. He's, he's telling it again to place it before us, to force us to sing it, to force us to hear it, to force us to remember the story. And right there in verse 5, we are told just blatantly right on the surface, remember his marvelous works which he has done. There's the command. We are commanded to remember what God has done. Just as we heard in 2 Timothy 2 and our word of exhortation today. It's not just that we're called to do a bunch of stuff. We are. In fact, we're going to see that at the end of this text. The reason why he's telling this story and the reason why God has done all of this is so that they might observe his statutes, verse 45. So yes, we are called to do stuff. But we are called to do stuff and to obey while remembering who God is and what his marvelous deeds are on behalf of his people. So we are to remember. So let us jump right into the psalm in the beginning, because then we, we can think about what we're to remember. But first, I want to dwell here for a second on the call to remember and, the, and in, to encourage you about what we're doing here on Sunday morning. Because look at all the commands. Our psalm doesn't begin by telling the story. The psalm begins by many exhortations and commands. And these commands and these exhortations laid out right at the beginning are really a call to worship. They're a call to do what we're doing here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So let's just look at it in verses 1 through 6 and listen to all of the commands, all the, the, the imperative uh, verbs that are given to us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. 
Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Can you see in all those exhortations and all those imperatives what we do Sunday after Sunday? In some sense, the elements of our worship, if you look at our worship service, these imperative verbs are the things we're doing, right? We're giving thanks. We have our prayer of thanksgiving. We praise his name. We make known his deeds. That's what I do Sunday after Sunday, right? I make known his deeds. I declare the work of the Lord. We talk of all his wondrous works, even in our even in our uh prior to our service as we give testimonies of of what the Lord is doing. Sometimes we have testimonies of praise and sometimes we make requests to one another. And when we make requests to one another, we're saying, hey, would you call upon the name of the Lord for me? Would you go to the Lord on behalf of me as we pray for Evars, as we pray for Donna, as we pray for Ben's mom? We take that and then together in prayer, we call upon the name of the Lord. We acknowledge humbly before him that he is God. We seek the Lord. That's what we should be doing. That's what you should be doing right now. As we come to worship, we come seeking his face. Lord, I want you. Help me to see you. As we hear the word of God read, are we seeking? Are we seeking him? Lord, I want to commune with you through your word. All of these things are the elements of our worship that we're doing every Sunday. We come calling on the name of the Lord praising his name, giving thanks to him, remembering his deeds, confessing our sins, calling upon him for our forgiveness, calling upon him for our daily bread and for our provision. This is the call to worship that we have in Psalm 105. And I want to pick out and hone in on that verse 5, the call then ultimately to remember. One of the things we're doing as we come here Sunday after Sunday into worship is we're remembering. We are remembering the covenant that we are in with God. And part of our tradition calls worship service a covenant renewal service. That is, we're coming together Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to renew our covenant with God. That is, to remember the covenant relationship that we are in with Him. We come acknowledging that He is our God and that we are His people. Acknowledging that we are sinners, acknowledging that we are forgiven, hearing his great deeds, and then going out to declare them to the nations. That's what we're doing Sunday after Sunday, is we are remembering who we are and whose we are. So let's take up that theme of remembering, because now the psalmist, as he calls us to remember, launches into this grand story, primarily of the Exodus, but this grand story of God and his people. And right there in the beginning, and in verse 8, but I'll jump back to verse 7, notice how it begins. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. And hence the title of my sermon. Remember he remembers, or remember God remembers. The, psalm, the psalmist is calling us to remember but one of the things he's calling us to remember is that God remembers. It is important for you and I as the people of God to remember that God remembers us because 
there are these long gaps and spans within the history of redemption where our minds and hearts are prone to wander. And where our hearts and minds are prone to wonder, Lord, have you forgotten us? We would never admit this. We would never say it out loud. We'd, we'd, we'd feel too awkward to say that out loud. But the reality is, when we go through trials and tribulations, it is our nature to wonder, like the psalmist in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? And it's important for us to remember that God remembers. Because if he forgets us, we're finished. Now, we actually had an accidental misprint in the uh, New Testament reading. I'm not sure if it's, I, I, should, I should have looked. All of a sudden, you start reading, and I thought, uh-oh. Um, that's okay. It was Psalm 20. It was uh, Luke 23 that uh, was the uh, New Testament reading today. And the reason why I chose that, and that's okay. That's okay. Because really, I chose that reading for one verse. And there Jesus is on the cross. And you'll remember that the thief is there beside him. And it's interesting, the faithful thief, the thief who converts there, it's interesting what that thief asks of Jesus, right? And you remember what he asks Jesus. Remember me. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. I will not forget you. I will remember. It's important for us to remember that God remembers. Remember the mighty deeds he's done. And the mighty deeds he's done were done in remembrance of his people, in remembrance of his covenantal promises. You will remember that a week or two ago, we reflected on this with the rainbow in, in the covenant with Noah. That the, Why is the rainbow there? It's there to remind you that God remembers. Because it says every time God sees it, he will remember. And so we get to see it. And in our seeing it, we see that in fact God remembers the promise that he made. And we should find comfort in that. And this is true even last Sunday as we partook of the Lord's Supper. As we do this in remembrance of him. What are we remembering when we take the Lord's Supper? Are we just remembering what Jesus did? Okay, yes, that's certainly sort of on the surface. Like, yeah, we remember. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out. Yes, we're remembering. But what we're really remembering every time we take it is we're remembering that God remembers, that God sees us, not as we are, but he sees us in and under the broken body and spilled blood of our Savior, that that sacrificial atonement covers us and he remembers that we are in him. He remembers that we're forgiven. And every Sunday we partake of the Lord's Supper, we get to remember that he remembers this. This is important for us, this pattern of remembering that God is, in his very nature, a covenant-keeping God. I think I shared with you at that time that one just of my favorite little phrases and verses is in, is in Genesis 8.1, and God remembered Noah. There is Noah on the sea 
this torrential flood, this flood of judgment. Literally, his whole world is gone. And there he is at sea now for 40 days. And it's interesting that in Genesis 8, it doesn't just say, and then God did what he said he would do. And, or, and then God said, it's, and then God remembered Noah. He did not forget the promise he made to him, the covenantal promise he made to him. And so I want to challenge you today to think of God using Psalm 105, to think of God as primarily, or at least one of the primary things about God, as a covenant keeping. He's a covenant making God and a covenant keeping God. The story of the Old Testament is the story of God making covenants with his people. Do you know what a covenant is? A covenant is a, it's a pledge. It is a self-commitment. It's a commitment of God to his people, initiated by God, by which God commits himself to his people. And God makes covenants with his people. And the story of the Old Testament is God's repetition of the giving of his covenants to his people. God makes a promise to Abraham and excuse me to Adam in Genesis 3:15. Right? In speaking to the serpent, God makes a promise, a, a covenantal promise that he makes to Adam in his words to the serpent. Speaking to the serpent, he says, and I will put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And he, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So right there in Genesis 3, we have God making a covenantal promise right in the presence of Adam and Eve that he is going to restore enmity between them and the serpent and he's going to restore friendship and familial relations between him and them, between God and them. And the rest of the Bible is that promise working itself out. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, God renews that covenant in very dramatic ways. The next time we see that covenant of grace renewed is with Noah. God makes a covenant with Noah. Noah, I, I, I'm going to destroy. I'm going to, I'm going to purge the earth of this sin and wickedness and perversion that is dominating it. I'm going to purge it and I'm going to establish a new creation with you. And you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply and you're going to fill the earth and all of this. God makes a promise to Noah. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we're told, and God remembered Noah and his promises to Noah and he sets Noah up in a new creation. And the next time we see that covenant renewed and established is with Abraham. As God calls Abraham out of a land of idolaters, just out of sheer grace, Abraham is in a family of idolaters and he calls Abraham out and he says, Abraham, out of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And through you and your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This is God just repeating what he said in Genesis 3.15, but now expanding on it and honing it and focusing it on Abraham and his offspring. And through his offspring, the offspring of Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. 
God makes this promise to Abraham. And that's where our psalmist picks up in in reminding us of the story of Abraham. In verse 8, he, that is God, remembers his covenant forever. God does not forget. Now think about what he said there in Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How is that fulfilled? Where is that fulfilled? Ultimately, this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But we've got a couple thousand years to go here before we get to the fulfillment of this promise. And God does not forget. God does not forget. He remembers his covenant forever. His word, which he commanded for a thousand generations, meaning forever. The covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, that which was confirmed in Jacob. So God makes this promise to Abraham. He renews it again to Isaac. He renews it again to Jacob. I'm going to give you this land, Abraham. You and your descendants are going to inherit this land. Go red. Go ahead, walk the corners of it. Yep, note it. Plant altars around because I'm going to give you this land. Only one problem. There's strangers in this land. The occupants of this land are giants. We're not interested in just saying, okay, you can have it. You can understand why the people of God might scratch their heads and say, did he really mean it when he said this? Did God really mean it when he said that Abram... Come out here. Come out. Come outside with me. Look at the stars. So shall your descendants be. It has to be metaphorical, right? Because I'm an old man. My wife is barren. We've never been able to have kids. Certainly God is, I don't know what he's doing. He must be joking. Sarah's in there laughing. Can can God mean this? That's like, you know, you make these promises, but they just seem so unrealistic. I'm going to be a father of a great nation. I'm going to be a father of many nations. My descendants will be like the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. We're going to inherit this land that is occupied by giants. I can't see any conceivable way that I, this nomadic person, is going to take over this land. And so, of course, in moments of real doubt and despair, Abraham succumbs to his doubts, sleeps with Hagar because he's thinking, okay, I, I guess God is saying I'm going to do this. I have to find my own way to do it. I mean, Our hearts wander because these promises are so outrageous and they are not fulfilled instantly. And the psalmist picks up on that. He made this promise to Abraham. He confirmed it to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob. And yet he said, and this is up in verse 11, saying, I will give the land of Canaan to you an allotment for your inheritance. But he said this when they were few in number, verse 12. Indeed, very few. And and they were strangers in this land. But God said he would do it. But then you know the rest of the story, and he starts to go. He, He said he would do it, but then in time, famine came into the land, and they were actually chased out of the land. They had to leave the land that God said he would give them. But but that's okay because he sent someone ahead, he sent Joseph ahead. But and then he pauses and he thinks about Joseph's story for a second. Think about this story. Joseph, who is living in the, in the glow of God's promises, not only to his family, but to him personally. He's getting dreams about the fact that he's going to be 
in some kind of power and his, and, and his brother, his mother and father are going to bow before him. So he's living in, in the promise within a promise of, God, of what God's going to do. And now his brothers seek to kill him. They decide not to kill him, so they sell him into slavery. He ends up being sold to Potiphar, who's actually a pretty good guy, and lets Joseph flourish and thrive there. But then Potiphar's wife accuses him of attempted rape. Okay, he should be executed. He's a slave. What slave lives when, when an aristocrat's wife accuses you of rape? But, but the Lord watches over Joseph, and he's not executed. He's actually shown some mercy and thrown into prison, but he's forgotten there. He's forgotten. Remember even the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, when they are there with him down in there and he interprets their dreams and they go back up and they say, hey, we're not going to forget you. And they forget him. He's forgotten. But the Lord has not forgotten him. Nor has the Lord forgotten the promises that he made to him. And Joseph at this moment, like Israel and Abraham in his time, when he's thinking, how could this ever be fulfilled? I mean, how silly do Joseph's dreams seem to him when he's rotting in some Egyptian prison? How stupid I was to ever tell my brothers that ridiculous dream that the sun, moon, and stars would bow before me that the sheaves, my brother's sheaves, would bow before me. How stupid I was. But the Lord remembered Joseph and provoked the memory in the man. Which one was it? Is it the cupbearer? I, I can never keep myself straight. But whoever reminds, um, reminds Pharaoh of Joseph's interpretive gift. And Pharaoh summons Joseph to come to him and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, and lo and behold, Joseph is made the right-hand man in Egypt, and even the Egyptian princes are judged by him, and Joseph's brothers come, and lo and behold, their sheaves bow to him. They bow to him. The sun, moon, and stars, mom and dad, and all the brothers bow to Joseph. For the Lord remembered his promise to Joseph. And he remembered his promises to Israel, and hence they are provided for. And when the famine comes, there is already a suffering servant who has gone through the bowels of the Egyptian justice system and come up, resurrected out of the other side, and is now ascended to the right hand of his Egyptian father. And he rules from there, and here now come the people of this man to him, bowing and worshiping him, if you will, and he is providing for them and sustaining them so that God keeps his covenant promises to them. But then they get there, and there comes a time, a Pharaoh who knows not Joseph. And these people are the fetters that were around Joseph's ankles, now end up around all their ankles, metaphorically, as they are all made slaves in this land. And now they are there for hundreds of years. And has God forgotten them? Has God forgotten you might be tempted to think he has because what are we doing here? But God has not forgotten. He remembers his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he raises up a man, Moses, 
to come and to challenge Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. And the psalmist now launches into this wonderful retelling of the plagues that God brought against Pharaoh and against the gods of Egypt, culminating in the fact that he destroyed their firstborn, verse 35. He destroyed all their, is that, no, verse 36, the eyes are going bad. He destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strength. The Lord breaks the, the, the legs, if you will, of the Egyptians, and he brings Israel out. He also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. So the Lord brings them out, and not only does he bring them out from their slavery, but he brings them out loaded with treasure. And he splits the sea, and he destroys Pharaoh, and he brings his people on their way to inherit the land that he has for them. And as he brings them out into the wilderness, there's a cloud for a covering and the fire by night. The people ask, we don't get all the story about how whiny and annoying they are, but the people, it just sounds so nice. They ask and he gave them quail, but we know the real story. God is so rich in mercy because they didn't just ask, they grumbled and they whined, but the Lord did bring them quail and he satisfied them with bread from heaven. He opened the rock. This is Exodus 17 when he tells Moses to strike the rock and out of that rock, water gushed forth and it ran in the dry places like a river. And then in verse 42, for he remembered. This whole story of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob and the horrors of Joseph and the famine and the flight to Egypt and the enslavement in Egypt and the delivery from Egypt and the wandering in the wilderness and the provision of the... The psalmist comes back around in verse 42 for he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. Our God is a God who does not forget. Do you look around and see the madness that swirls around us? If you know your history, you know this is nothing unusual. This is the age we live in. It's an age of curse. <laughs> but have you forgotten? that God remembers. God has not forgotten his people. He remembers his promise, his holy promise to Abraham. And that promise, brothers and sisters, was not fulfilled when they came back into the land and Joshua conquers the enemies and they get it. Nor was it fulfilled when David came along later and defeated all the enemies and conquered the land and bequeathed the kingdom to his son Solomon. No, these promises were not fulfilled until Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, came to that Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin, John, and then began a ministry which culminated in the cross where he, the only begotten Son of God, was crucified yet and had his heel bruised, if you will, and in so doing, crushed the head of the serpent and delivered his people. In that act when we get to that culminating work of the cross, it's there that we remember that God has actually remembered what he said all those years ago, how long it's been. The people stop believing. You're not actually waiting for Messiah anymore. That's ridiculous. And then this prophet-like figure stumbles into the wilderness and says, John, baptize me. And the heavens open up and a dove descends and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And they don't know what to make of it. The whole, the whole three years of his ministry, they don't know what to make of it. It's just, they're trying to connect the parts. They can't figure it out. They've forgotten the story. 
so that when they see Jesus fulfilling it, they don't even know what they're seeing. Who do men say that I am? Well, you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? We think you're the king. Well done. But they don't actually believe it. Or at least they don't know what kind of king God has in store for them. They don't know the very promises that God himself remembers. They've forgotten, but God remembers. I just want to look at the end of this psalm. For he remembered his holy promise to Abraham, his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. And he gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations. Do you see in this, while it's true that this is what God did for Israel in Egypt and what he did for Abraham, do you see in this how the fulfillment of this is ultimately in Christ? For it is in Christ that all of his people were truly brought out. As Mark prayed, our own Egyptian exile and exodus out of sin or enslavement in sin. Indeed, this story was fulfilled in Christ. For it is he who is the greater Moses, the book of Hebrews, who leads us out of our enslavement and brings us out with great joy and gladness. For he brings us out of enslavement to sin and to Satan and to death. As Jesus walks out of that grave, so he brings us out with him with great joy, and he gives us the land of the Gentiles. That is, he gives us the whole world, a new creation. Go, Jesus says, into all the nations and declare, tell them, teach them everything I've taught you, baptize them and disciple them. I give it to you, the land of all the nations. They inherited the labor of the nations. And here's why, verse 45. And this brings us back now to what we said in our word of exhortation. God has remembered his promises. He has fulfilled his promises so that, verse 45, they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. You and I are called to holy obedience to God. But as we said in our word of exhortation from 2 Timothy 2, that obedience will only be achieved when you remember what God has done for you. When you remember that he is a God who has remembered you. He has not forgotten you. He will not forget you. And therefore, you don't have to worry about that. You can be faithful now in the task, in the moment, in the suffering, in the affliction, in the challenges, in the prosperity that God has given to you because this is the reason for your salvation. Why are you called out to be a unique people unto God? For this very reason, that you might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Why were you predestined, Romans 8, Romans 8 uh, uh, 29? All those he foreknew, them he also predestined, that they might be conformed to the image of his son. You don't just predestined, elect, made the people of God just so you can go to heaven when you die. Yes, you will go to heaven when you die, but the reason you are the elect people of God is so that you might be conformed to the image of his son, so that you might observe his statutes and keep his laws and glorify and honor his name. And you will only do that. You only have the power to do that when you remember what God has done for you that his marvelous deeds of remembering, his covenant faithfulness, and his keeping of his word and his promises to you. May his covenant faithfulness delight your soul. May you know your story like Elrond knows the story of the elves. 
May you be a man or woman who has this story be the story that defines you so that you might be filled with courage, you might be filled with joy, and that you might be filled with hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the story of which you've made us a great part. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all your covenant promises. He is the seed of the woman that has come to crush the head of the serpent and to deliver his offspring. He is the great Noah who takes us through the floods of judgment into a promised land. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He's the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. He is the seed of David who is raised from the dead. Father, he is the fulfillment of all of your promises. Help us to remember And we give you thanks that you have not, nor will you ever forget us. As the thief on the cross said, remember us, and indeed, you have said, I do. So, Father, we thank you for this. Embolden our souls through it, we pray, unto greater service and law-keeping and obedience unto you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.